Welcome to the podcast, Risk is the New Kale. Each episode, I talk with folks who have figured out how to extract opportunity from risk. As someone who has spent a career controlling risk, I want to know those who embrace it. Risk is the new kale. Good for you. Hard to take. Thank you so much. This is so nice. This is awesome. I just can't believe we have just run into each other so many times over our career. Um, And now I'm out the other side into a totally different career. We can actually be friends as opposed to colleagues. (laughs) She's been an elevator mechanic for over 13 years. She's passionate about leadership and advocacy, is formerly a member of the executive board of the International Union of Elevator Constructors, a shop steward, a founding member of BC Tradeswomen Society, and on the Governance Committee of the BC Centre for Women in Trades. Please welcome Nicole Wheat. Thanks. Okay, we're going to just jump right in here. Nicole, safety brakes became standard on elevating devices in the 1850s, but for some folks, that is not very comforting. So why do you think that people believe elevators are riskier than they actually are? I think it's just because people don't understand them, and people often fear what they don't fully understand. It's like a magic box that gets them from one place to another, but they actually have no idea how it works on the inside. Besides movies like Speed, of course, which dramatize it and often use incorrect information. I uh, I hear it a lot when I'm like working at, when I'm at work, uh, especially if the doors are open and we have our barricades and people often peek in to see, you know, what it looks like. And yeah, it's amazing how often people comment about how elevators scare them so much. And I, I usually respond with uh, a little bit of information that most elevators actually fall up, not down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Like the brakes are holding them against the counterweight. So the magical box is amazing symbolism. Okay, so I want to talk about how you came to be a mechanic for the magical box. But I know that you went to university and you studied criminology. And then you did this change and you became an elevator mechanic. So tell me how that happened. Yeah, I I wanted to be an RCP officer and uh uh, things just kind of changed and my goals changed kind of and I was kind of just floating around I wasn't sure what I was going to do to X so I actually went off to Taiwan and I taught English for two and a half years in Taipei loved it still have amazing friends actually went back to see some of the students a couple of years ago they were all in their last years of university because they were like so yeah 12 when I left it was crazy but I um yeah I kind of came back and went back to university majoring in English and my dad was actually talking to my sister's boyfriend at the time and, and mentioning that the elevator union was hiring and there's a process, you call in and get your name on a list and then write it after you test and I just responded with like, me, I'll do it and my dad's always supported me in anything I've done so he's like, yeah, you'd be great at this. And that that's is so cool. Kind of just that's how it so happened. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's like you fell into it but of course it was meant to be, right? Because you went to your dad's jobs with them um, right through high school and I'm sure there was shop talk around the kitchen so family probably had a big influence. Oh for sure yeah my grandfather uh, passed away now but he was also an elevator guy in the union so I listened to the two of them and my dad's best friend 
most of my dad's friends were elevator guys growing up. Uh, but my dad's best friend and my dad used to do their time together on Thursdays and they were always building things in the garage as well. And I just used to love just hanging out with them and listening to them talk and helping out. I had my own little like old welding hat that I could put on so I could watch what they were doing when they were welding stuff. And they always loved their job. Like they always, they were never frustrated with it. They just considered every time something wasn't working as it should, it was just a problem that they would dissect and talk about and, and decide how let's try this and maybe tomorrow we'll try this. And they just, they loved it. They really did love doing it. And I think that just passed on to me where I was just like, it's just a, a job that my dad loved so much and it was interesting and it's never going to be boring. It's always going to be something new to break as technology changes. And their love of it just really got passed along to me, I believe. I, I just admire that so much. I, I have to say my dad was an electrician and I learned the definition of integrity from him because he would describe a job and then he would say, and this is what we did to make it work. And and I knew that it was elegant the way that, you know, he pulled the wire through and where he tied it off. Like it was, yeah, it, it meant a lot to actually have that as a basis. What do you think today holds people back from going into trades. It's a wonderful career. It, it really is a wonderful career and I can't imagine doing anything else, but I, I think representation really matters and it's, it's hard to picture yourself doing a job that you've never seen another person doing that looks like you. There weren't a lot of women in the trade when I got in. There were two other at the time, but they both lived in Vancouver and worked in Vancouver where I started my career out on the island. So it wasn't until I was almost finishing my apprenticeship that I actually met another woman in the trade and it was like, oh my goodness, I'm not alone. We call it a unicorn trade often with those, right. those trades where there's <laughs> there's so few of us around. There's also like a lot of both internalized misogyny and misogyny women's face on job sites. We can, it can be hard to walk into that knowing that there's things you're going to have to deal with and, and uh, just that misconception that you have to be a big and strong to be a tradesperson. Well, I don't really think that's right. There's always going to be a time where you need to move 100 pounds, but do it smartly. Use a tool, team lift, lift smarter, not harder. We say that one all the time. And uh, look at look at what you can do well. Look at your skills and your strengths and work towards those. No one's going to be the best at everything. Just pick those things that you're going to be the best at. And, and whether it be like fitting your hand into a t tight spot, you know, troubleshooting. Some people are really good at organizing things, and that is definitely something you need in the trades, organization. Those are really good tips, right? You can find your own genius. You don't have to have all of it. Yeah, for sure. I'm never going to lift as much as a guy that's six foot two, right? But I can do other things really well. Yeah, and then you're going to also take care of your long-term health because you're not going to end up having compression issues. Very exactly. important. Okay, so you're a huge advocate for women in trades, and we first met when we were both on a panel. You founded the BC Trades Women's Society, and when you say that representation matters, I, I also believe you have to see it to be it. So how is the sector changing? Like, do you see policy change, legislative change, culture change? Where, where is it evolving? It, it is changing. So there is a group of women that, yeah, we worked together. Uh, we created the BC Tradesman Society. We founded it in part because we wanted to get government funding to create a center for women in the trades where we could really advocate for change rather than always having volunteers, actually having people that 
their job was yeah, to yeah, advocate yeah. for women in trades. It is hard to do it all off the edge of your seat while already working 40 plus hours at your career. So uh, we created the BC Tradesman Society and actually from that we uh, were one of the partners with another couple other groups to create the BC Centre for Women in the Trades. And they're doing great work. They are really, they're really changing the workscape to make it more suitable for not just women, but other people as well. It doesn't always have to look the same. Yeah. And yeah. there's not ever going to be one f- fix for everyone, but uh, there's a lot of other groups though too. So there's like the BC Tradesman Society, the BC Center for Women in the Trades, uh, the Build Together, which is part of the Building Trades, Builders Code, BCIB. There's there's all these different groups, and I think everyone does things a little bit differently. And I think with all those options, or really are making a shift of that culture. It's also just explaining people that people need more than just a job. They need a place where they can like learn in a safe environment and be given the chance to actually learn the skills that they're going to need to have a successful career. You are starting to see that too with like, I know in your, in your lines of work that you've done as well, trying to help with diversity, like making sure the language is inclusive whether it be on a job listing, making sure there's diversity training, there's committees at your work, at your union that can really focus on those things to, you know, grassroots as well. It just, it has to kind of come from all directions to make a difference, I think. It's a complex problem, you're right. So it's gonna take a very wide way of solving it. Um, Yeah, that was really nicely described. I'm interested in the language side. For me, language has, it's just so important how people describe themselves. It seems to me that there's a generational shift in that too, the way that people are showing up and intentionally taking back language. Do you see that? I definitely see that. There's actually a conversation I'd had on on one of my networks uh, just over the last couple of weeks where someone had posted an advertisement uh, for a job and the job used the term journeyman. And I just like nicely said, I'm like, hey, awesome that you're posting this ads. You say it's a great company. That's what I want to hear. Maybe next time ask them if they could list the ad using the word journey person, which has been the federal language since I think 2008. And uh, it definitely rolled into a bit of a conversation where some some felt like journeyman was the term that they wanted to use. And I go, that's totally fair. You can call yourself whatever you want. I go, but when it comes to other people that might be considering the trades, they may not feel included if it uses the language like journeyman. And I bring up always the example of, you don't usually hear people saying fireman anymore or policeman. It's become so common in our language to use the term police officer and firefighter. It's it's been a bit slow to get to journey person or journey. Uh, Often a lot of people just say red seal, um, if that works for you. Elevator mechanic for myself. I don't actually have a gender in my title, which is nice, but it's language does matter. And it's not necessarily for the person using the language. It's for the people reading the language that might be considering that a place to work or a career or you're, you know, my niece. I don't, she's, you know, at that age where when she sees words like man or boy, you know, she in part of something like that means it's for men or boys. And I don't I don't want her to think that I want her to think that she can do whatever she wants. There's not a, a gender to any career per se. And how old is she? She just turned three 
I bought her tools for her birthday this year. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, she uh, she actually loves helping. I always every time I go to my sister's house, she always has a list of things for me to do. And Claire, my niece, was uh, helping counting out the screws for me and passing the me the little ones or the big ones. And she really liked holding my impact drill. She was very excited about that. I got a really cute picture of her and her beautiful princess outfit holding my impact drill. <laughs> that is a keeper, right? For Wear sure. whatever you want, as long as you got your PPE and you got your right tools. It's yeah. so good. You know, we talked a lot about language, but you know, a single thing that can actually improve access to people in trades? No, if there's a single thing, but I think it starts at the beginning. I uh, posted a meme the other day that actually got a lot of conversation around it and it said um, normalize sending kids to trade schools after high school without making them feel like they're less than four-year university kids I think it, it really resonated yeah. to me because I was academically inclined in in high school it was just trades were never even talked about as an option even though my dad and my grandfather had successful trade careers it was just like you will go to university because you get good grades and and uh, I wish that trades would have been something that they spoke about in school and that they encouraged everyone to take shop classes and learn how to use basic tools and whatnot, because I think I may have gotten to the trades younger than if I'd, if I'd known how many amazing trades there are out there. And these skills that I have now from learning how to build elevators, like I use them all the time. I'm always building things at home and I have the confidence to do those things now. So I think a lot of it just comes down to at an early age, not making people believe that they can't do something, that there's always going to be other options and that you can change your options partway through. You also don't have to decide your career at the age of 14 and, and never look back. And that's the only thing you can do. You know, you can, there's so many women that have, that I know that got into the trades in their thirties and forties. They had other successful careers and then they pivoted into the trades. There's, there's, there's so many options out there and not to tie yourself down with just one. Yeah. That's, I think that's generous, right. To say to somebody, what well, you could be whatever. So, you know, here's, here are all the choices and you know, you're going to come to the different choices at a different time in your life too, right? Like you got to have some lived experience and, um, but everything is available to you. Learning, it's what keeps us going. Okay, so what I would like to ask you about, Nicole, is advocacy as well as passing your knowledge on to other people. Obviously, leadership is in your veins, like you are it. So what parts of leadership do you most enjoy? Like what, what feels like more of a risk or a stretch for you in leadership? I'm just curious. Um, I've always just wanted to be part of the solution. So just in life, since I was a kid, like something's going on, I want to get in there and help work to fix it. I always had a hard time like sitting back and, and watching someone struggle or seeing an issue that I could help fix and just sitting back and letting it letting things fall apart without try, at least trying. And uh, I also understand that like I have a lot of privilege and I want to use that privilege to make safe spaces and, and help make a positive impact. And working in a group, I think, of like positive, interesting people is just 
it's so amazing. Like our board currently for the BC Tradesman Society is so diverse and there's all different ages and trades and, and I just love it. Like there's so many ideas and things that I would never have thought of because of who I am and how I and how my life's been thus far. And I just love these ideas and all this great energy. And that's what I love about leading. I love being part of a group and just coming up with everything with this group mentality. I think it's I think it's just invigorating. It just keeps me going and gives me more energy to do more. Um, as far as risks or hardships, I guess, uh, I find that like stepping up to be a leader in my union, that was, that was scary. No one else had, um, as a woman had held a position in the union and really, yeah, I was the first one. And I remember asking one of the, one of my brothers at the time being like, Hey, like I want to get involved. I want to make a difference in the union. I want my voice to contribute because obviously I felt like there wasn't a lot of diversity at the time. And, and they were like, yeah, you should, you should run for executive board. I'll nominate you. And I was like, oh, that seems like a lofty goal to start off with, but I did it. I, I ran, I got, I was nominated, I ran and, and I actually had the most votes my first term. And what? Yeah. that's so great. Yeah, it was, it, it was, you know, it was awesome being in that room. It is also hard being in that room, right? It's hard being, having one voice that can be quite a bit different than the rest in the room. It's hard when you're one. Yeah. One, yes. one is tough. Yeah. yeah. I did two terms. Um, I might run again at some point. I'm not, I'm not sure, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. Like when I speak in front of my union membership, it's often like over a hundred guys, there's been 300 people there and, and it's, it's an, it's intimidating. And often because of that, uh, some of the other women won't come to the meetings just because it, it is hard to walk in to a group like that where you stand out so much and they might not recognize you. So we were like, who are you? Why are you here? And I often, I'll get up and I'll, I'll ask for funding for the union to send myself and some of our sisters to Tradeswomen Build Nations Conference. And that's hard, right? Because I ask and then they put it forward and then they actually have to vote with me there after I've asked and answered some questions and yeah you're pretty vulnerable in that position yeah right? like it's hard but it's always gone well like there's yeah. always gonna be someone that's not going to agree and, and maybe think that I don't belong in that space but there's so many more that are my allies they're always louder than the rest which is that's important and at the end when I step back down and I get those like yeah good job you did great yeah the, you, you ladies are doing awesome man I love my sisters and and it's it's remembering that as scary as some things may be, it's it's worth it in the end and someone has to step up. So until someone else does, I'll continue doing it. Yeah. So you have been accepted to the Governor General's Leadership Conference and that's happening later this year. And it's been on hold for a couple of years because of COVID. And for people who don't know about this conference, it started as a Duke of Edinburgh Commonwealth Conference um, back in the 50s. And then Canada repatriated it under the governor general. And it is amazing. I I know from experience because I went in 2008 and I loved it. So do you have a sense of what province you're going to? Do you know where you're going to go? Yes, I do, actually. So I'm co-chairing my group and we are in Toronto. So it starts off in Huntsville, Ontario, and then I go to Toronto and then it ends in Ottawa. They've had to change things around just a little bit because of uh, different provinces having different rules. So I, uh, I get to, I've never actually been to Toronto. I've never been to Ontario. I've traveled all over the world, but not much in Canada. So I'm excited to like 
learn some new things. I've, I've met some of the people in my group and a couple of them had gone to university in Toronto. So I'm like, great, you can show me around and tell me about things. But I'm excited. I know yourself, um, Susie Skidmore, like everyone that I know that's attended has just told me how it's an amazing experience and there's no way to really describe it. And I can't wait. Like it's my biggest accomplishment so far has been being accepted into this. And I can't wait to get there. Like it's been the longest two years having it extend and extend, but I'm really excited about it. Oh yeah. You're going to have an amazing time. I just, I learned so much from that because it was private sector, labor sector, and public sector all coming together and learning from one another, but then learning from the region too. And when you think about stepping into a group like that, people who are representing every part of Canada coming together in these huge forums, unbelievable people step up to speak. I I think I recall that um, a leader from... uh, uh, I think it was Inuvik came to speak about the right to be cold. So that was back in 2008. And it just seems like such an obvious thing now. And back then it was like, oh, yeah, you do. Climate change is real. So what do you hope to take away from meeting with your leadership peers from across Canada? I think because so much of my work I do now is around tradeswomen I think I'm really excited to like learn about all the other great things that are happening and that people are involved in. Like I think I'm gonna really expand on my knowledge and my contacts. I'll probably find more things that I wanna fight for <laughs> and nurture and advocate for and but uh I just yeah, I'm really excited just to learn all the about all these people and what they care about and what matters to them and and how they've problem solved issues. Cause I really think that that's, you know, there's always other ways of doing something. And I just love to learn and expand on that knowledge of other ways I could troubleshoot issues here in BC and here for my tradeswoman movement. Excellent. Yeah, well, there's, you know, they're gonna be so lucky to have you part of that group. <laughs> so big game on the weekend. Canada accomplished something huge. Yay, the men are going to the World Cup, something the women have consistently done, but the men are finally going. Um, And you are a soccer fanatic in your free time, I understand. Yes, I am. I I grew up playing soccer. It was the first sport I think I played. Growing up, my dad played soccer, my sister played soccer, and I never actually watched soccer. I was never one that watched. We watched hockey on TV. We watched racing, we watch golf, we watch baseball, football, all the other sports. But for some reason, my dad never really watched soccer on TV. And the year I moved to Vancouver was actually the inaugural year of the Whitecaps playing in the MLS. So I actually went to that first game at the temporary Empire Field. And and it was so easy to fall in love with. Like I was already love soccer and then just to watch it live, which is just watching soccer live is just a whole nother thing. There's chanting, there's there's yelling, everyone's like, so many people are standing, like there's just so much great energy. And instantly I was in a love and and got season tickets shortly after. And it's just been a space that I've, I've really loved and had a lot of fun. It was my, my place where I didn't have to advocate for anything. I just got to go there and enjoy. You could just be a crazy fan. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and then I got, you know, I started to volunteer a little bit. We do these things called TIFOs, 
which are these hand-drawn displays on fabric that you hand paint and then you hold them up for often only like a minute at the beginning of the match, often like poking fun at something for the other team or supporting your team. And I started doing stuff with that. That was that was tons of fun and and getting more and more involved and making these uh, good connections with other women and other supporters here in Vancouver. And it's kind of where I start to see that maybe there are some issues there with inclusivity and safety for women and the uh, LGBTQ plus community. It was kind of, there was, uh, there was some incidences of verbal, physical, and even sexual assault at BC Place and some of the other supporters events. So a couple of my friends and I created the South Sisters. We've actually now just called the Sisters, but yeah, we created a safe space to advocate for issues that we face when supporting. And it was a, it's a fun, it's a really fun, great group. And we actually work really closely with one of the other supporters groups, Rain City Brigade, and they're a great group as well. And yeah, we do a lot of good stuff. Nice. Okay. So let's go back to your work. Um, Tell me what the tools of the trade are for an elevator mechanic. So a little bit of everything, because we deal with electrical and mechanical and kind of a lot of things in between, uh, I have a lot of tools. Like my tool bag probably weighs about 80 pounds, so which is mostly hand tools. And then we get all the fancy stuff like magnetic drills and drills and impacts and concrete drills. So it's definitely a mixed bag of everything. Actually, a couple of my tools in my tool bag were actually passed down from my grandfather. So I'm very attached to those ones, but they're such good quality that you just can't find that stuff anymore. So, so I actually have them in my tool bag and like my, one of my cha- pairs of channel locks and my three eights ratchet are for, both for my grandfather and they're oh, like that's constantly in my hands. But uh, for my, yeah, for my job, like I did construction for a long time. So I was in new builds and I actually made the transition recently a couple years ago to service. So now I'm still oh, okay, building yeah. elevators from the ground up. I actually work on the ones that are old. So I get to learn a lot about old elevators and I really like that part about it. God, I walked past a building the other day and it had a cage elevator in it. And my husband (laughs) said, would you get in that? And I said, no, (laughs) I wouldn't (laughs) because I might be in there for a while. So a typical job then um, doing elevator maintenance. Tell me what that's like when you drive up to a site. So doing service, like right this week, I am replacing an old door operator. So it's the item that opens and closes the door when you come to the floor. And uh, yeah, I I get there. I usually try to, if they do have a building manager, face-to-face with the building manager, see if there's any concerns that they have while I'm there, if there's two elevators, if there's one that they want me to start with. Just because I find starting off on a good foot with someone is always a good idea, especially with old elevators. You never know what's gonna happen when you shut them off and then turn them back on again. There's always a surprise, it seems. Last week, my drive decided that it wasn't done. It was done. It's like, I'm 25 years old. You gave me a two day break. I, I quit. <laughs> it was really? like, I'm not, I'm not running right anymore. So I usually try and touch base and uh, let everyone know what I'm doing, make sure my signs are up and, and then it's, I usually actually like now with technology, I take a picture of everything before I start anything, just so I have a kind of a good space of like how things looked before and how they worked before, just to make sure when I put on the new pieces that everything aligns the same way and things move the same way so that you're not putting any stress on any bearings or joints or anything like that. 
When you're doing the service, um, you normally, I'm assuming, bring the cab down to the bottom floor. Um, but I don't know if people quite understand the structure of elevators uh, in terms of where the machine room is or if there is one and what the pit's like and the fact that it is a big shaft, but there's lots of parts in it. Do you want to sort of describe that structure? Yeah. So for most elevators that you see, they're traction. So more often than not, in that case, the machine room would usually be on the top floor. There's like almost like the little top that you see at the top of the buildings. That's often the top of the elevator shaft. And the then on top of that, the machine room. Though there are a lot that are actually basement traction as well. You don't see those as much anymore, but there are a lot of them still out there. And so inside the elevator shaft, you have your cab, which you're, where you stand. And then usually either to the side or behind, you have the counterweight. And the counterweight actually usually weighs around 50% of what the max load of the elevator is. So often when you get into the elevator, the elevator is actually a lot lighter. So it's easy for the elevator to go up because the counterweight is heavier pulling it down. And then the elevator has to work a little bit harder to pull that cab down to the bottom and have the heavy counterweight go up. So when I'm doing work on a brake, so if I'm replacing, like recently I uh, removed an emergency brake system and put in a new one, in that case, because the counterweight's so much heavier, I actually parked the car near the very top of the shaft so that if something did happen with the other brake, that the counterweight would only go a couple inches down onto the buffer and the elevator itself, the cab, would only go up a couple inches at the top. So less likely to have a, a free fall of if I'd done it the opposite direction, the counterweight would have had this entire hoistway to fall down if the brakes had failed while I was working on the emergency brake, and that could have caused the elevator cab to actually go with all that energy to go up into the overhead and cause some damage. And that has definitely happened in the past. Uh, I've never seen it happen, but I've heard about it, which is why like whenever I'm working on the brakes, I'm just like, counterweight to the bottom, <laughs> cab to the top. Such great risk assessment, right? Like what are the other barriers you can put in place so that if one thing doesn't work, then, you know, there is something else to catch it. And yeah, very cool. And that's what elevators are. There are so many safety devices. For an elevator to fall, like you see in some of the movies, like each one of those cables can usually hold the elevator on its own. And you might see anywhere from three to eight of those cables. And then there's a, a governor which governs the speed of the elevator and and in that there's two different switches in it there's an electronic one that's kind of like it sees that the speed's going faster than it should and that's one way of the elevator to stop so it'll be like hey you're going too fast you're over speeding we're gonna stop and then there's another governor switch that's like okay now you're really going too fast and we're gonna put on the brakes which are like kind of almost like a wedge most of the time that wedges into the rail and, and stops the elevator. Usually within four feet, it, it stops it pretty quick. It actually like you can, when you do the testing, of course, as you would know, uh, it leaves marks right in the rails because you have to test these elevators before you turn them over to the public and make sure that all these safety devices work as they should. In order to get to that last one, you have to jump out all these safety items to even get the elevator to do what you need to do to test those safety items. So it's I always tell people like the elevators are so safe. <laughs> like they are very very safe. Absolutely. You should not be concerned. Absolutely. What would you say is one of your best jobs recently? Most fun or most interesting? 
one of the ones that like meant the most to me was it was a kind of in the downtown east side area strathcona uh, the budsey building and so it's part of rain city housing so i think that one specifically was for women and families so it was like it was housing their their whole goal of rain city housing is like a home for every person like everyone deserves a home and a safe place and i just it meant a lot to me that i was like part of a big project that was going to provide all these homes for women and families and children and and somewhere safe somewhere to call their own and it had all these other um things in the building to advocate for them and and just to help people along and i really like that one i love that that was like it was doing so much good i got to be a part of something that was doing good for the world versus you know just a regular condo building of 18 stories that's just you know every every unit sells sells to someone right like this one it 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 felt good to be part of a solution yeah that meant something something more to those folks for sure nice how is technology changing and elevating devices it it just seems like every day we read about some new tech device and elevating isn't any different so what what's coming down the pike there there's all there's all kinds of interesting stuff um you see lots of stuff with magnets and and some of the stuff that actually stops elevators from moving faster is friction right because there's the the friction of the wheels that run on the rail on the rails and those get hot if you're moving super fast so i've seen like some of these the wheels for the elevator are like super big because they're trying to reduce that friction and that heat so there's they're doing some interesting things with magnets nothing's really you know mass produced or anything yet and there's some some stuff I've seen preliminary where like they can actually like change directions like they can go up and then sideways they like kind of change tracks but again that's not something that you're we're gonna see here anytime soon but some of the stuff you see locally that's come up the last couple of years is destination dispatch so you may have seen that in a hotel or uh, some of those big commercial buildings so you actually walk in and instead of just pressing the up or down button you put in your floor so floor 32 and on that kiosk that you input that number into it'll say go to elevator b you walk over to elevator b and what it's done is it's grouped people together with you that are all going to the same or close by floors you all get on and once you get into the elevator there's no more buttons to press besides like a door open button and an emergency button. And uh, on top of that, now they're even having fancier ones where instead of even pressing the kiosk, you can just scan your phone or your key card and it'll be predetermined, you know, what floor that goes to. Right. And so you don't even have to touch anything. You just go in, it'll stop at your floor and you get out. All these people are going to come back to the office after two years of hybrid work and they're going to be like, what? Yeah, there's some other stuff too, where like some UV lights to sanitize buttons, and there's some interesting stuff happening. It's it's always changing, just like any other any other technology centric trade, right? Like there's just there's always something new being developed, and some way of making things faster, quicker, more affordable, you know, fancier. So it's 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 interesting. I'm never gonna get bored. There's always gonna be some new problem to figure out. So one of my podcast interviews was with an aviation expert, and I asked him about um, pilot pilotless planes. When are we going to see that? And he goes, well, there's no driver in elevators anymore. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I'm going to be looking to elevator technology as kind of the bellwether <laughs> for how planes are going to be automated, how vehicles are going to be automated. Like, 
your industry, it comes first. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. I have read that the tallest elevator on the planet is Anglo Gold's Ashanti uh, Maponing Gold Mine in South Africa. Um, in three minutes, it drops 2,283 meters, which is a lot in a single descent. And um, the tallest freestanding building is under construction right now. It's the Jeddah Tower in Saudi Arabia, and it's going to be over a kilometer tall. And I think both are amazing. Um, I guess my question to you is, because you're in this industry, are you an elevator tourist? Like, would you go on those? I don't know if I would travel somewhere specifically to check out of an elevator, but I have definitely traveled places and checked out the elevators. I was <laughs> uh, obviously elevator sisters get together. And when we go to the Trades and Build Nations conference, uh, the host city usually does something fun for us. And we actually went to the Willis Towers or Sears Towers now they're called. And we got to see the inside of those machine rooms and ride those double-decker elevators, which was just amazing and fun. And I took a thousand pictures, of course. I was actually really fortunate. I was in Taiwan as they were building Taipei 101, which was for a short amount wow. of time, the tallest building in the world. But I think actually held the, uh, it was the fastest elevator. I think for about 10 years it held the world record, I think, if I remember correctly. So they were building it and finished it while I lived there. So I got to ride that one. And I definitely rode it. Even though I wasn't in the elevator trade, I was still daddy's little girl and I loved elevators. So I think I went up or down that one like three or four times paid to like... Did you? Oh yeah, to go up to the observation deck. I'm like, oh, someone's visiting in town. Oh, well, I have to take you here. I was like, yay, look at this elevator, cool. Do you actually get the sensation of acceleration and deceleration in something like that? Not very much, actually. They had a, they actually have a scale model outside, which I took a thousand pictures of, of course. Um, and they have like pressurization. So they're actually able to like really adjust everything as it's moving. So it's, you barely felt it. Like I remember going, oh, I should get a piece of gum out because of the, the altitude change. Like my ears might be bothered. And I didn't even like get the gum out in time. I was like oh, the doors are opening, we're here. And wow. uh, you talked about like the swaying of the building. At the top of Taipei 101, you can see this giant ball. I can't remember what the material, material it's made out of is, but you can walk around and what that ball does is in, uh, they have a lot of typhoons obviously there and earthquakes in Taiwan and, and just windstorms too. So the, Oh, it's the counterweight. Yeah, it, exactly. So yeah, it sways the opposite direction of the building to try, try to keep that center as, as still as possible it was it was really interesting to read about it and then the way that they built that observation deck so you could actually see it we could walk all the way around it was really it was really interesting so while i don't think i would travel to a country specifically to ride an elevator if i was there i would probably try and find the time i love it <laughs> okay my final question for you is if you had the power to fix anything any issue on the planet what would it be um, I think by doing one thing, it might help a lot of things. And that would be more diversity in leadership roles. And you see some of those countries that have had women leaders and you look at New Zealand, they've done fantastic things there. And I think if we had better diversity in leadership roles, I think it would help with a lot of the world issues of like climate change, war, equity, um, safety for all people. You know, I think yeah. I think that, that could make a big change. Yeah, I agree with you. Because right now there's just not a lot of diversity. When you look at the leaders of the world, 
Okay, we'll work on it. (laughs) We're trying, right? (laughs) Gotta start somewhere. Thank you so much. You're a leadership rock star, so you keep doing it. (laughs) 